You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. When you open the Old Testament, you enter into the drama of salvation history. At Beeson Divinity School, one of the things we discover in students that come from some traditions, that the Old Testament has been sort of left aside. And they've spent so much time in the Pauline epistles and understanding the Gospels that uh, oftentimes the Old Testament is neglected. I think that's one of the reasons why we've chosen to do this Samuel series. In the lectionary, our reading today is in Samuel chapter, the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. It's the story of, of Saul and Samuel and David. We truly can preach Christ from Genesis to Revelation. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus was talking to two disciples. The risen Lord Jesus is talking to two disciples. And they have not yet recognized him. And he begins to explain to them how all the scriptures talk about the Christ. Later, they will describe the experience as their hearts burning within them. When we look at the book of Samuel, it, we're meant to see an unfolding pattern an unfolding experience where God is making himself known, preparing people for the one greater than David, the son of David. So we read about David in the light of the one who is to come, but there's even something more to the David story that ought to be understood at the outset is that when we read about David, we're also reading about ourselves. That the Bible really means for you to put yourself in David's shoes. You are David, anointed by the Spirit, part of the holy nation, the royal priesthood, God's special possession. Now we may wonder how on earth that can be, but let's look at the story here. It begins with Samuel mourning and the Lord regretting that Saul was king. And you remember from last week in Andrew's sermon, the people were insisting on a king even though the Lord had given them a prophet and even though the Lord had pledged his presence. They wanted a king like the other nations. And I think we're meant to see ourselves somewhat in that. Wanting a relationship with the Lord God, but really wanting some other kind of power, some other kind of strength that does not necessarily come from the Lord. The Lord is just asking the people of Israel, let God be God. But Samuel mourns over the loss of Saul. Now Saul did several things as a king that thwarted and ruined his 
relationship with the Lord. He usurped the authority of the prophet. He caused his soldiers to make a false and egotistical vow. And then he directly disobeyed Samuel's order. And the Lord was through with him. He regretted that he had been made king. And the regret, uh, this is hard for us to kind of fathom. This is unusual language for God to use. But the Lord has been accommodating himself to the people's stubbornness right along. And somehow it took a Saul in order to reveal a David. And the Lord allows this to play out. The patience of God in allowing this to play out seems highly unusual to us. Saul represents an outward conformity to the ritual of what God prescribed, but an inner resistance in stubbornness and rebellion to God. Probably just about everybody here has seen Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather at some point. I know my, kid, uh, my parents questioned whether or not I should watch it because it was so violent. And maybe some of you parents are also of that mind. But the ending scene of The Godfather has Michael Carleone vowing in a baptismal service in belief in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And there's cutbacks to Michael has also taken on the family business, the mob business. And to establish his authority, all of his enemies are being wiped out. And so scene after scene of assassination is played against the beautiful baptismal service. One moment we're at the baptistry and the next moment we're in a scene where his enemies are being wiped out. Now, that's an extreme parable. One theologian has called it, though, the Godfather problem of an external religious conformity, but an inner, diametrically opposed relationship. This is what God understood of Saul. Samuel also understood it. Because when the Lord came to Samuel and said, stop mourning over Saul. Now obviously the mourning for what might have been was certainly in place, but there came a point where things had to go forward. And the Lord says to Samuel, stop mourning, take your oil, go to Bethlehem, go to the family of Jesse, and anoint for Israel a new king. Well, Samuel realizes that his own life may be somewhat in jeopardy, anointing a new king with an already difficult king. And the Lord said to Samuel, he gave him a strategy. I find this fascinating, the Lord giving him a, why didn't he just wipe out Saul? Why play this game? But he extends it out. And he gives Samuel a strategy, take a heifer, and tell the people you've come to make a sacrifice. And so he goes to Bethlehem with his heifer. And the elders of Bethlehem are scared too when a prophet shows up because he says he come to judge. But he hasn't come to judge, he's come to offer a sacrifice. 
Now, that little scenario of sort of the subversive worship pastor coming into Bethlehem, Bethlehem, I find very striking. As a pastor in a mainline denomination that went south on me, leadership that questioned the authority of God's Word, leadership that questioned the exclusive truth claim of Jesus Christ, leadership that challenged my belief that there really is heaven and hell, that questioned the conviction of a bodily resurrection of Jesus. As a pastor within a denomination like that, I took comfort in the fact that week after week I could preach the gospel, that I could administer the sacrament to a congregation that was hungry for the word of God and believed in the exclusive truth claim of Christ, believed in the authority of Scripture, believed in a theology, a biblical theology of sexuality. And week after week, even though the leadership of my denomination had moved away from that, I had the great opportunity, the subversive opportunity, under the word and under sacrament to spread the gospel. Samuel is commended simply because he does what the Lord wants him to do. It's as simple as that. Lord, you say it, I do it. And that's how the prophet existed, governed by the word of the Lord. He comes to Bethlehem, consecrates Jesse's sons, all seven of them. He didn't know there was an eighth. And then the Lord speaks after Samuel is so impressed with the oldest son, Eliab. And the Lord says to Samuel, and this is probably the, the key verse of the passage, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesse calls the, the other sons, goes through all seven of them. But the Lord has not given him the indication that any one of them should be anointed. And he says to Jesse, is this all you have? And Jesse says, well, no, I've got the youngest son, the eighth son. He's out in the fields keeping watch over the sheep. Now, Jesse here may impress you as a typical father overlooking the youngest or and somehow not treating them all with the same respect. But you know, we're not really given any negative indication on Jesse. I'm sort of conscious of the fact, after I preached a Father's Day sermon many years ago, a very wise person came up to me and said, you know how you observe on Mother's Day, we're always telling mothers what a great job they're doing? And then on Father's Day, we're always saying, you can do better? Well, there's nothing negative said here about Jesse. It's just that David's not there. And it's interesting, a teenager, a teenager who we understand from the Psalms was uh, a fairly conscious understanding of his adult responsibilities, and maybe the vibes of Psalm 23 were in his soul even then. For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
makes me lie down in green pastures. He wanted to be there. He didn't want the ritualized conformity of his other brothers. Maybe it was his own choosing of his own choice to be out there in the wilderness with the sheep and didn't really feel like bothering with that formal ceremony. Maybe God's grace has already gone before in David's life. Maybe there was something about being in, present, in the presence of God out under the stars that was more appealing to him than what he thought would be taking place in Bethlehem. But in any case, he's summoned and he comes. Now here's something else that I think needs to be observed. We teach our children here at the Advent the importance of these Old Testament characters, of Abraham and of Noah and of Moses. And, and we want our children to identify with these characters because they, we find something in them that relates to God that ought to be modeled by us and learned by us and how the grace of God comes. But then, about the time you start learning how to drive a car, you start distancing yourself from these Old Testament characters. And by the time you've gotten through university, you have no relationship with them. This is for other people. Maybe the David story pertains to Andrew Pearson, but not to me. Because I'm not playing what I feel or perceive as a strategic role in the life of the church. Well, that's where we're wrong, I think. Because what we end up doing is taking our limited relational capacity and imposing it on the Lord. And because we can't have that many relationships, then we perceive that the Lord can't have that many relationships. Well... I think if we're really biblical and really understand our sovereign Lord God, we ought to realize that, David, that God's relationship with David is exactly parallel to the Lord's relationship with you. There are no generic Christians. There is no hoi polloi. There is no general mass of Israelites to the Lord. Personally, existentially, emotionally, he knows you the way he knows David. That you are David to the Lord. David's particular path, historical path, yes, is unique. His individuality is unique. The role he plays, but the role he plays is all because of God, not because of David. And that plays itself out in your life and in my life as well. And so when David is taken by Samuel and the oil is anointing him as the next king, a position he's not going to have for at least 15 years, 15 years of struggle and difficulty and great trial before he becomes king at 30. You and I are also anointed by the Holy Spirit. On this fourth Sunday of Pentecost, 
we remember Joel's prophecy that Peter preached at Pentecost. That God's Spirit will fall on all his people, all your sons and daughters, and your old men will see visions. The Holy Spirit will be real for all of us as it was for David. And as David walked away, and now his name is used, finally in this narrative, the name is used, David. And he walks away, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he walks away in a power. Son of David, one greater than David. That's why we tell the David story. But we not only tell the David story because of that, we tell the David story because of you and because of me. That we stand in David's shoes, anointed by the Holy Spirit. One last thing. The Lord really does emphasize here that appearance doesn't count, doesn't he? He looks on the heart. And there's a concern about sort of ritual conformity and an inner distancing. But at the end, this is why I find this ironic in the narrative... David's talked about as being handsome, bright-eyed, good-looking. Why did the storyteller tell us that? It seems somewhat extraneous at this point, doesn't it? After the point that's being made? Well, here's why. Uh, in Greek philosophy, it was really understood this externality. Beauty was something you looked at. It was over there against you. In the Hebrew mentality, the aesthetic, the beauty, was the sense that's totally integrated in life. A holistic sense of what's beautiful. Gray hair on an old man, that's beautiful. A lady sitting on a bench talking to a grandchild, that's beautiful. That's what beauty is. Well, I like to think that the inner disposition to be devoted to God in Christ shows itself out in a countenance, in a way we look, in a way we act, in who we are. It can't be hidden. What's in your heart cannot be hidden. It becomes evident in what we do, who we are, how we act. And that's how it was with David. We are indeed, by God's grace, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And God knows you just as much as he knows David. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.